Hello and welcome to I Don't Know the Podcast, Episode 6, Alien Abductions. Are alien abductions real? I don't know, but that is this week's probing question. Betty and Barney Hill, Travis Walton, Calvin Parker all claim to have been abducted by aliens. But those are in America. What about here in the UK? Aren't British people good enough to be abducted? Well, it seems that some are. And some aren't. This week, we look at two bizarre, but very different cases of alien abduction in the UK. Nineteen eighty, a leap year. President Carter was in the White House. The Rubik's Cube appears. ACDC released Back in Black, and an impressionable young Camel starts high school. It was a different time, a time without seat belts or bike helmets, a time of open sexism and perverted TV presenters. A time I remember fondly. But PC Alan Godfrey remembers nineteen eighty for completely different reasons probably. He was a cop on the streets of West Yorkshire, and this is the year a sequence of events would change his life forever. Did you approach it? I got within about 20 feet of it. And then you went back to your car to report it, did you? No, I didn't get out of the car. It came back from them, they couldn't identify what it was. It was very, very strange. They actually examined my left foot. Now that's remarkable to me. Now, Jim, let me finish. During the hypnotic regression experiment sessions, they come out with the same account, more or less, as Alan Godfrey. P.C. Alan Godfrey's story starts when he is called out to reports of a body, a dead body, that had been found in a coal yard. He talked on The Unexplained with Howard Hughes. Howard is great. He's almost like a British Art Bell. Thank you very much for coming on, Alan. I know that you don't do a lot of uh, radio interviews, so it's very, very good to have you on here. Um, Tell me about what happened to you in 1980 in Todmorden, where you were working as a policeman. Isn't Howard's voice amazing? Thank you for inviting me on to your show. Hmm. Alan's voice isn't quite as good as Howard's. Uh, you 
talk, you want to talk about a Damsky case first, do you? Well, first of all, I want to talk, yes, about because the two are linked, aren't they? There was the body of a man found on the top of a coal storage pile. Yes. And then not long after that, you had another experience. So talk about the, the first case, this man called Adamski, who was yeah, found at the top, of this, yeah, it was top of this pile of coal. Yeah, he was a coal miner, I believe, from Tingley, near so, Wakefield. So at the time, you were a constable, and in those days, of course, uh, my dad was a policeman in that era. Howard likes people to know that his dad was a policeman. Um, he mentions it a lot. Uh, well, I go attend Tomden Railway Station and go along to the coal yard there. Uh, the ambulance service and the owner of the coal yard had discovered a body. Uh, on my way there, uh, PC Malcolm Agley, he was in the Panda car. A Panda car for non-UK listeners is a black and white police car, not a car for lazy monochrome bears. Picked me up, and we both went up there. It had been raining very heavily as well. Uh, as we entered the coal yard, uh, it was like a horseshoe shape with all the uh, sleepers up, you know, different corrals, if you like, with different types of calling. And uh, one of the ambulance drivers said, I think you better go and have a look at it. So Malcolm, being the senior officer, he went up the, uh, climbed the sleepers first, and there lying on the top was a, a dead body. He looked at it, came down, he says, you better go and have a look yourself. So I climbed up, and instantly, as you, as you looked at it, mm. uh, the eyes were open. Uh, his arms were right down by the side, but across the stomach, if you, if you know what I mean. Mm. It was lying as though he was just got into bed and he was fast asleep. And you, you, you have to say that police, you know, like I say, my dad was a copper for 30 years. Yeah. Yes, Howard, you already mentioned that. But this one struck you as very strange, not only because of where the body was found. Yeah, because as, a, as I looked at the body, it was obvious that on the, uh, on the skull, if you like, is it, that the air was cut right short, and there were individual burn marks around the uh, crown of the, of the skull. Burn marks? Yeah, black individual burn marks. And as I moved the head over to the left, uh, on the nape of the neck, there was a bigger type of burn mark, but it was weeping. Like, you know, like it was weeping. And there was this ointment that had been a uh, green-yellowy substance had been sm uh, smeared over it. Ugh. I'll never forget the look of those eyes. As you quite rightly said, I've seen loads of dead bodies and been on a lot of post-mortems, but... Well, it's part of your training, isn't it? You talk in the book about how um, they take you. It's why my dad always talked to me about this when I was younger. Oh, really? Uh, what did your dad do again? Uh, he used to say one of the first things they make you do. I don't know if they still I'm do it with police. They take you. They you've got to see somebody dead, and you've got to go to a post mortem, and you know you yeah, because that will prepare my you. First one, but uh, it was a setup because as I went into the mortuary at Hebden Bridge, the body was under a sheet. Mm. and the senior officer I was with, a PC senior PC, if you like, he said, look, Alan, the best way to deal with the dead body is to go and shake hands with it. Really? Which is, actually, it's true, actually. It is, it is a good way to learn how to deal with dead bodies. I mean, we have to say this is like 40 years ago, so it's a long well, time yeah, ago. Maybe talking, they don't do you know, that sort of thing today. We're not talking silent witness here, mm. you know. We're talking, you know, PC plod. <laughs> so I walked over to the, the body, and as I... Very hesitantly, got all of the to shake hands with it. It suddenly gripped me. And oh my God! 
sat up. <laughs> it was another copper, wasn't it? Uh, th- that, now, that is something else that we have to talk no, about. That's... As I've said, the 80s were a different time. You were allowed to fuck about in a morgue then. Okay, back to this man, Adamski. Now, it's a 56, 56-year-old man. He was seeing dead bodies, and it was quite obvious to me, and to Malcolm, that this guy didn't die where he was found. It, it, it didn't look right. He, he, looked to, he appeared to have been dressed after death. You know, like you go into a shop where they have dummies, and mm. you can tell they're not human, you know, the way they dress them, they can't see... And, and what, wasn't he wearing just a jacket and a string vest? There was no shirt. A, a, an outer jacket, mm-hmm. and underneath that was a, a white string vest. Uh, the trousers were... Uh, the jacket was kind of half-fastened and half-not, but they're in the wrong buttonholes. Well, I've woken up like that before, haven't we all? Do you know what I mean? Mm. And the trousers didn't look as though he put them on. It was like, very strange, very, very, very strange. And, uh, and did you think at that point, and it's not in the book that you reflected that, but did the thought that this is a bizarre murder that I'm looking at here? Uh, at the okay. time, I thought it was unexpl- an unexplained death. Uh, obviously, as the years went by, and me and Malcolm did a lot of research into it and investigation, what have you, and uh, we both came to the conclusion that this guy didn't die where he was found. Mm. Although at the inquest, which you've obviously read in the book, the officer gave it... I wasn't... I never attended the inquest, neither did Malcolm, neither did uh, Peter Sutcliffe, who was the leading fireman who'd been in the coal yard. He he had a part-time job there. This is not, obviously, Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. Well, I assume it isn't. I haven't really done the research on it, to be honest. None of the three main witnesses, all the ambulance people, were ever called to the inquest. In fact, uh, an inspector gave evidence, and he was asked specifically by uh, James Turnbull, the coroner, uh, did he die where he was found? Yes, sir, yes. uh, In my opinion, sir, he died where he was found. Well, coming from a guy that never even visited the scene... and the fact that none of us were called as witnesses, it, it just didn't sound right. And there was an- wasn't there another real anomaly about this? Because if you had a body, or even if you were still alive at that point and had climbed to that point, but if you were taking a body to the top of a coal tip, <laughs> you yes. would be covered, as I used to be when I used to go and play around one in Liverpool when I was there a kid, you'd be covered in coal dust. There was, honest, there was no... It, 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 was, it was raining, it had been raining, but... Well, you've got to ask yourself a question. <clears throat> the guy had never been to Tomlin, as far as we know, in all his life. He went into an area of Tomlin probably a lot of Tomlin people have never been in. <clears throat> he, uh, why would a man... He apparently died of a heart attack or a heart failure, as the pathologist said. But <clears throat> the thing is, why would a man at his age climb a stack of coal in the rain and lie on his back and die. Why would he? Sigmund was a normal family man. He had a wife and kids. He wasn't from Todd Morden. He lived 20 miles away. He was due to give away his niece at her wedding the next day. He wasn't covered in coal dust. And he wasn't dressed properly. So, initially, what was your thought about how this had happened? What was your best guess? Well, my, my opinion is that uh, 
whether deliberately or undeliberately, he died somewhere else. And uh, how he got onto the top of the Crawley, but like you said earlier, you know, it's quite steep. I can't imagine anybody carrying a body up there. Why would they? And how that body got up there without being <laughs> it doesn't make sense. covered in coal if, dust? If the guy died in somebody's company, well, <clears throat> we'll just suppose that it, uh, he was, I don't know, something happened here, he was taken away. And if he died, you wouldn't, you'd either hide the body if you didn't want it to be found, or you'd leave it where it was. It, it doesn't make sense why it was on top of this pack of coal. It just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't make sense. And as I said, an ointment had been applied to that one on the nape of the neck, like a yellowy, greeny smear light had been smeared across it, which eventually uh, was sent for tests to the Home Office Laboratories at Weatherby. And surprise, surprise, they, it came back from them. They couldn't identify what it was. Not even top government scientists can identify the ointment or goo or whatever it was. Did you think that he might have been the victim of some kind of ritual? No, I didn't. No, I, I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't. I couldn't explain. In the newspapers, there'd been speculation that Zygmunt had been taken and then dropped onto the coal heap by a superior intelligence. And Alan then drops this. There have been lots of uh, UFO sightings, apparently, in the areas mm. during that time. The mystery around Sigmund Adamski's sad death was never solved. There were rumours of a cover-up, but still very little was known. Was it the result of a haircut gone wrong? Or was it something far more sinister? I don't know. But this isn't where PC Alan Godfrey's story ends, which is good because it wouldn't be a very good story if it did. On the 28th of November, 1980, Alan's world was turned upside down. He went on to BBC Breakfast to tell everyone about it. Uh, during this interview, some terrible artist impressions appear on the screen. I'll try and share them on Instagram. Also, they do mention Doctor Who a lot, and that's because for some reason, the sixth actor to play Doctor Who, Colin Baker, is in, on the studio sofa. Is evidence that some human beings have been actually abducted by non-human entities. I know it sounds far-fetched, but it's true, because a book published later this week collects together some of their claims. Now, among the most remarkable is the case of Police Constable Alan Godfrey, who had a close encounter, a very real kind, on a dark winter's night in 1980. Now, while on patrol, he reported sighting what appeared to be a spaceship. And although he has no conscious memory of what happened next, under hypnosis, he recalls an alien called Joseph beckoning him towards a table. That's veteran BBC presenter Frank Boff. He sounds nice, doesn't he? Unfortunately, um, Frank's TV career ended after the News of the World published the story with the headline Frank Boff, I Took Drugs with Vice Girls. I'm not sure what the story was about. And then some smaller aliens and a dog appeared, tugging and pulling him towards the table and forcing him to lie down. And then Joseph began an examination of Police Constable Godfrey, while the creatures tried to take his shoes and socks off. There's a dog and creatures trying to take his shoes and socks off. Sounds like a night out with Frank. 
Now, suddenly it was all over, and Police Constable Godfrey was sitting back in his police car, and now he is sitting with us here on the breakfast time sofa. It's an extraordinary story, isn't it, really? Uh, <clears throat> you, you recollect things in your mind, and you recollect other things only as a result of hypnosis. Can we start with the first bit? What were you actually doing that night, and what, what did you see? Well, I was driving the uh, Panda car uh, along Burnley Road in Todmorden, and uh, I came across this strange craft blocking the road. Describe it to me. Well, it was about 20 feet high, about 14 feet wide. Uh, it was a diamond-shaped object, hovering about five feet off the ground. Now, at this point, you didn't see anybody, did you? Uh, no, I didn't see anything but other than that. Did you approach it? I got within about 20 feet of it. And then you went back to your car to report it, did you? No, I didn't get out of the car. Ah. I didn't want to get out of the car. You didn't? No. <laughs> but you, you got on the blur, did you? I got on the radio, both radios, the uh, VHF in the car and the UHF personal radio that we carry. Yeah. And I got no response at all. They didn't work? No. Was that unusual? Not in that particular area. There are black spots yeah. in the area. But the, the radios have worked there since. And then you left the scene, did you? The next thing I remember was I was at the other side of where the object had been, driving the car. Away? Away. Did you report it when you got back? I certainly did. Mm. They thought you were crackers, presumably. Yeah, they did. Yeah. <laughs> now then, as a result of hypnosis, a lot of that story has been filled in, hasn't it? Now, what, is, <clears throat> what do you recollect from the result of the hypnosis? Well, as I say, I have no conscious memory of what I said under hypnosis. The only thing I, could, I can go off is uh, the hypnotic regressions were videotaped. Yeah. And uh, I, I think there was about three or four tapes done. And when I actually was allowed to see them at the end of the session, uh, it was quite frightening. What you'd said under hypnosis? Mm. So what, what, tell me the other story now, the one that they, they drew out under hypnosis. Well, under hypnosis, uh, when I see the craft itself, as I said before, I didn't get out of the car consciously. I find myself getting out of the car, and uh, for some reason, I have no idea why, uh, a strange, very powerful beam of light is shone towards me, which blinds me. I jump back in the car in panic, and then there is some sort of a blackout. And after the blackout, I wake up in some sort of an examination room. I see. So, uh, this spaceship, or whatever it is, uh, did you see that in your recollected...? Uh... Yes, everything in unhypnotic regression, everything was accurate right up to... The bit that... The when I got out of the car, it. yes. Okay, well, describe this creature to me, this man. Well, it was a humanoid, or of human appearance, is about six feet high. But not quite a human being, The artist's impression at this point either looks like Ming the Merciless, or one of the most anti-Semitic pictures I've ever seen. Well, he had a human appearance. Yeah. Uh, he, he had a beard, and he, he wore some sort of a skull cap, and he wore like a white gown. He was very pleasant in appearance. He wasn't at all frightening to look at. Okay, now you've, you've got yourself into this room. What goes on there? Who else is there? <clears throat> there were, uh, I think I said there was eight uh, small three-foot-high creatures that transpiolated during the hypnotic regression uh, as robots. So there's a Jewish guy, a dog, and now space robots. Uh, were you in a normal room, or were you in a spaceship, rather like uh, Doctor Who's time capsule? Were you in something as kind uh, of... It looked bigger than his capsule. It's a TARDIS, Frank, not a capsule. I'm amazed Colin Baker didn't walk out at this point. 
Yeah. You know, it doesn't look very big, does it? <laughs> but inside, it, yes, very, I would say it's very similar. And then they, what, they tried to undress you, didn't they, at one point? Take your shoes and socks off. Why? Why was that? Well, this is one of the funny things about it. When I got back to the station, I found that my left boot was split and I had a burr mark on the instep yeah. of my left foot. And in the hypnotic regression, they actually examined my left foot. Now, that's remarkable to me with the other evidence of the other police officers seeing the craft as well. Isn't How did your experience end in this place you were with, with these people? <clears throat> uh, the doctor woke me up. We never actually got to an ending. Yeah. Uh, I was wired up to some heart machines yeah. and they completely went off the scale. I was in such stress that the, both doctors stopped, mm. stopped the hypnotic regressions. Now tell me, what do you make of it all? Do you believe now in UFOs or, or what? <clears throat> Are you convinced that those things actually happen to you or, or it's just in your mind somewhere as an imagination or a dream or something like that? Well, the UFO certainly existed. You're uh, sure? Of that, yes, right? it was a nuts and bolts craft. I'm, I think I'm quite capable of seeing something from 20 feet. Uh, well, if I said to you, was, anything, I you take, anything you say will be taken out of use in evidence, you would say that you saw that thing? Uh, yes, I would, swear on, I would swear on the Holy Bible. You what would. I saw that day, I've seen nothing of the like except in science fiction films. And what other thoughts have you had about the whole experience? Uh, the abduction part, well, I've thought about it. I've thought, well, perhaps it's something that I've read about and seen as Doctor Who. Mm. And because of my experience, it somehow got jumbled up. Yeah. Or it actually happened. He does actually seem quite convincing. It's just the parts about the Jewish and canine foot fetishists that I wish I knew more about. Yeah. It's a good story, isn't it? Wonderful. Huh? I mean, that, that's a whole whole series of Doctor Who's. Well, I mean, what do you make of it, Colin? I mean, you, you work in the fiction of this. I mean, he is saying this isn't fiction. He is saying, I actually saw that thing. I mean, sitting here listening to the story, I cannot do anything but totally believe it. Yeah. And viewed by any objective standard, I think that it's perhaps naive of us to think that we are the only things that exist in this huge universe. Nicola, what do you think of all that? I, I think it's rather pompous to think that we're the only people mm. around. Um, that there isn't possible, possibly life somewhere else without, you know, we don't have the facts of everything. So I think it's rather pompous to think we're the only people. Alan, and you I are taken very seriously, I mean, aren't you, by, by people who, who, uh, who study these things? I mean, what, <clears throat> what do they say about your experience? Are they also convinced that you actually went through this experience and those things and those people were actually there? I think they are, yes. I think the UFO investigators that came to interview me, uh, one of them being a high-ranking police officer from the Greater Manchester Police Force, uh, he really gave me a grilling, yeah. uh, as he obviously is very experienced in it. And I think, well, they are convinced. Yeah. I mean, we did. I saw a UFO. Mate. No mistake, they do exist. There is nothing on this earth will ever tell me any different. Well, I mean, if you say that, <clears throat> I just cannot, as uh, Nicholas says, possibly believe otherwise. Thank you very much for telling the story. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, if anything else happens to you, let us know. Will you? <laughs> there we are. I'm sitting here in a cold sweat. Follow that, David Ike. <laughs> David Ike. That's really him. David Icke was a top BBC sports reporter before he went all... Well, you know how he went. Actually, interestingly, wasn't there a, a couple in America called The Hills who went through exactly the same experience? I think they went I through hip so, yeah. yeah, they went through hypnosis. And, and the way he's described it, I read an article, is exactly the way they described it. You know? Up to the point where they went in the craft, they could remember everything, then bang. And the hypnosis, they describe the same sort of things as you did. There are many, many cases of uh, abductions in this country that have 
uh, that I know about now. Oh, dear. Um, there's quite <laughs> several under hypnotic regression. Uh, there were three girls in Shropshire. Uh, they had a similar experience. And under hypnosis, they come up with very, very similar inside the McCraft and very similar beings in it. It is it? a very, very convincing <laughs> story to tell. We'll move on quick. And nobody's going to shake you, Alec. Thank you very much. It was in the skies. It seems David already has some knowledge of this. Alan also appeared on Granada TV's Upfront, and they actually had some film of Alan's hypnosis sessions. About 20 foot wide. About 20 foot wide. Mm -hmm. The bottom's spinning. There's some wind, isn't it? Some dark wind. There's a light coming from underneath. I'm getting back into the car. I'm going. So there's more information. Eight of them, and they're horrible. What uh, made you want to go under hypnosis to find out more about <clears> it then? Well, it, I didn't go under hypnosis for about 12 months after the event. That's a long time afterwards. I mean, did you see any films or read any books or about science fiction or anything in that time? I mean, maybe it was... Obviously, up to the event, I mean, I had no interest <laughs> whatsoever in UFOs, the Loch Ness Monster. Or how can you not like the Loch Ness Monster? Or anything, you know, I was just a total police officer, 10 years service. Uh, and when you come across something like this, and the reaction within the job and the, on from the Ministry of Defence and their investigations that I had to go under, mm. obviously I became interested in, in, in what I'd actually seen. Right. And when I found out through investigative work by other people <laughs> that I had to actually had a time lapse, uh, and I was asked to do under hypnotic regression, which incidentally was done by the police surgeon, and it was sure. done under proper medical... Okay, well, I think, I think you've established that. I'm quite intrigued, though, to know what some of our sceptics have got to say about a story like that. I mean, it sounds very convincing. Now, John Mason, I know that you've spent a long time looking at this, and you're not at all convinced, but how do you explain <laughs> a story like that? 
Well, firstly, let's say that hypnotic regression has been used in America in many, many cases to uh, look at people who've had these so-called abduction experiences. And in a lot of cases, there has been leading of the person under the influence. There was a couple of questions in that interview there where there was a certain amount of leading of the abductee by the interviewer. Now, that... The doctor who carried out that session, I was the person who arranged the session. Ah, that immediately makes me sceptical. No, 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 no. But I, no, no. I did not utter one word. Yeah, that guy, John Mason, doesn't like any of this. I'm not sure who he is, though. During that session. But you were there. No, please, I was there, but I was silent. I was the cameraman. The, invest the interrogation was conducted by the doctor, who didn't even know that it was that it was a UFO event. I deliberately didn't tell them. Harry, can I, give you, can I just give you a very quick quotation? No, no, just one second. Now, this is a very unfair criticism. I did not lead the witness. I never spoke a word at all during that session. And the doctor had no idea what was coming next. He right. was just asked to invest... To hypnotise a police officer. Harry, Sorry. Steve, does, does that, I, does that satisfy I, you? No, not at all. Yeah. I'd like to give a very, very quick quotation from a guy who is past president of the International Society of Clinical Hypnotists. It'll have to be quick. Professor of psychiatry and, and various other things. And what he says about this kind of hypnosis is, there is no way by which anyone, even a psychologist or psychiatrist with extensive training in the field of hypnosis, can for any particular piece of information determine whether it is an actual memory versus a confabulation. That's it. By confabulation, he means a construction that comes out of the unconscious mind from things that have been read, from things that have been heard. Harry, what do you have to say to that then? Well, no, my comment is this, that I have arranged probably about a dozen or more hypnotic regression experiments with different doctors. Under hypnosis, well, what comes, how this comes about is you have a witness or witnesses who see a UFO, followed by well, an amnesia. Well, all right, think they do, followed by an amnesia. Uh, often they are multiple witness sightings. During the hypnotic regression session, let me finish. During the hypnotic regression experiment sessions, they come out with the same account, more or less, as Alan Godfrey. Under hypnosis, their blood pressure rises, their pulse rate, they express or, or display extreme bodily fear. Now, if the accounts are very similar. I have no explanation. I wish I had. You must be Harry, aware of Harry, the experiments. I'm, quite, I'm still quite intrigued because I know that we could go down the path of, yes. of the hypnotism, yeah. which, um, I mean, I'm still intrigued. Do you know how I got it? Hang yeah. on. I'm yeah. still intrigued yeah. by this business about losing an hour out of your life, which is actually what happened That's to you as well, Linda. isn't yes. it, Linda? It appears these two have crossed swords before. Well, on this show, there's a lot more interrupting and people saying, let me finish. And then they move on to another abductee called Linda who I haven't done any research on, so we'll finish that bit there. One of the interesting things about P.C. Alan Goffrey's case is that there were multiple sightings of UFOs in the area at that night, some from other police officers. Another strange aspect of this case is that Alan's wife believes aliens may have cured him of a terrible condition. Before his abduction, Alan was severely beaten while trying to arrest three robbery suspects. As a result, doctors had to remove one of his testicles. His injuries also made Alan sterile and unable to have a sexual relationship. A few months after the abduction, 
Alan's wife was awoken in the middle of the night. A strange sound filled the bedroom. Alan stayed soundly asleep. The next morning, Alan made hot, sexy love to his wife for the first time in over three years. And weeks later, she discovered she was pregnant. Doctors also verified Alan's miraculous recovery. So, some good can come from alien abductions. If you're Alan Godfrey and not Sigmund Adamski though. And some alien abductions can just be plain disappointing. In the early hours of August 12th, 1983, 77-year-old Alfred Bertu and his dog Tiny made their way to the Basingstoke Canal in the middle of Aldershot to do a bit of night fishing. He picked out a spot by the army barracks and settled in. But in just 15 minutes, his life would change forever. And he would be very disappointed. While opening his thermos flask full of tea, he noticed a strange light coming towards him. It stopped and settled down behind some trees. Alfred could still see it and stood up to get a better look. Tiny became very nervous and started to growl. Alfred told Tiny to stop, but she wouldn't. Alfred then saw two figures approaching. Alfred wasn't afraid. His training from his time in the Canadian military kicked in. That's right, Canada has a military. The figures stopped just five feet from Alfred. They looked at him, then they looked at each other, and then they looked at Alfred again. Alfred described them as being four foot high and dressed head to foot in green. Their suits seemed molded to them with no zips or buttons. They beckoned for him to go to their spacecraft. It was a metallic looking thing with a set of steps coming out of it. Alfred went up the steps and found himself in an octagonal room. It was warm inside and smelt like decaying meat. The beings moved in a stiff manner and for the next 10 minutes Alfred took in his surroundings. The room looked like an unfinished metal room. It had no seams or joints of any kind. Suddenly a voice said, Come and stand under the amber light. The light was in front of him from floor to ceiling and he did as he was instructed. He stood in the light and a voice asked, What is your age? Alfred replied, 78 on my next birthday. There was a pause until the voice said, You can go. You are too old and infirm for our purposes. And so Alfred left the seamless room, went down the stairs and returned to his fishing spot. He watched as the strange craft lit up the entire area and then shot into the sky at incredible speed. He looked at his watch and an hour had gone by. Alfred then settled down to do what he went there to do, night fish. 
he claims to have caught three rudd and a tench. Hmm, something sounds fishy to me. Two military policemen approached, and Alfred told them what he'd seen, and they said that UFOs had been checking out the military installation. He told his wife all about it, except going onto the craft, because he thought she'd stop him from night fishing. A lot has changed in the area since Alfred's encounter. There's an increased military presence, even prohibiting people from entering what should be public land. But that's not the end of Alfred's sad and unfulfilling story. Investigator Hilary Porter decided to look into this case. She witnessed fully armed Black Ops type soldiers and a sign telling people that the area is off limits. In 2006, she took photographs of the area. In one, a strange metallic object is present. Upon blowing it up, she believes she caught an ectoplasmic object in the middle of shape-shifting. She also noticed that every year, on the anniversary of Bertu's death, an article appears in the local newspaper debunking Alfred's story. Episode 6 Alien Abductions The Epilogue So, what have we learnt from all this? We learn that David Icke had a keen interest in this way before he discovered the Queen as a reptilian. Actually, interestingly, wasn't there a couple in America called the Hills who went through exactly the same experience? We found that some of these things are beyond explanation. Didn't sound right. And we found that aliens give really shitty haircuts. And, you know, right, thick hair. But when, when we found him, it was very shortly cropped. Not very good, neither. Alan and Alfred's stories are very different, but there are some similarities. On both occasions, there are multiple reports of UFOs, and both locations have been known for UFO activity since. But I can't help but feel Alan had the better experience. He did get his foot burnt, but he did gain a fully working boner and incredible sex with his hot wife. Alfred was just told he was too old. On the plus side, apparently he did catch some fish that night. I have to make a special mention this week and want to say thank you to Raymond Rowell for an incredible new logo he designed for the show. Raymond is incredibly talented and you can find his work at Project Raven Collective. You can find all his details in the show notes. As always, if you'd enjoy the show, then join the Facebook group and Instagram and you can email me at idontknowpod at outlook.com and if you really like it, leave a five-star review. Thank you for listening, and come back next week to find out what else I don't know. Mr. Jones, we've been waiting for you. Won't you come on in? We'd like to talk to you about your progress and see how things have been. 